This episode is brought to you by The Rudy Project. Thank you so much to Mike Bunting and the team at The Rudy Project for sponsoring today's episode. If you want to receive 35% off everything that is Rudy Project, from helmets to sunglasses to gear, please check out the show description notes, and you will find a link where you can set up an ambassador account to get, that's right, 35% off everything. Also, we have a newsletter uh, that is on the website, stupidquestions.show. If you sign up for that newsletter and give us a follow on Instagram, it's just or the Stupid Questions Podcast. Anyway, I'll link it in the, sh- in the notes. Um, if you follow us and sign up for the newsletter, you will be entered for a drawing that we will be uh, doing for some Rudy Project gear. There are shirts. There are hats. There is water bottles. There are sunglasses, uh, a number of different things. So if you want to be entered into that drawing, again, please go follow us on Instagram and sign up for the newsletter at stupidquestions.show. That is the website. Thank you so much. How's it going, everybody, and welcome to this next episode of Stupid Questions. I don't even know what number we're on anymore, but that is okay. Today, we have on the podcast uh, Mr. Tim Yont. He is a 34-year tenured employee at the USA Triathlon uh, nonprofit. Obviously, we've all heard of them. They do a lot of awesome stuff in NCAA with, obviously, the Olympics and working with the Olympic Committee and so many other things. Um, But So Tim is the chief sport development officer for the company currently. He has held... So many other titles from VP of Communications, CEO a number of times, COO. He's done a great number of things for the sport, continues to do so, and has a really neat backstory as well. So, um, yeah, I guess without further ado, thank you so much for tuning in, and this is Tim Yont. Well, Tim, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. Um, such a pleasure to have you on. I don't want to spoil too much, um, but you I mean I've heard and read that you are the longest uh, tenured employee at USAT is that correct 33 years you just passed up yeah yeah it's it's crazy i i don't look at like 33 years because halfway through my career here i i had a chance to leave and i did for a year then i came mm-hmm. back okay so it's like 15 years and then 18 years and so it's kind of split into two chunks oh interesting so what did you do in between i was the assistant commissioner for national junior college athletic association Okay. which is like the NCAA for junior college athletics. So yeah. I came in and did did a lot of support work for, for that group and had a great time and learned a, a ton and a ton that's actually helped me here. But um, I got wooed back to, to triathlon. Yeah. So I came back and, and took on a different role. So Good, good. Well, we're going to uh, jump into all of that and dive pretty heavily into what you do, what you did. Um, but first to start off, just want to ask the question, who is Tim Yant? <laughs> Tim Yacht is a is a person who uh, grew up loving sports, loving athletics, um, trying every sport. I grew up in a small town okay. where I could do everything from tennis to basketball to football to wrestling to track to to to, to skateboarding. You name it, um, which which really shaped everything that I ultimately now do in my career. The, the love of sport, the passion for sport, mm-hmm. set me up to have a career in sport. Um, I'm passionate. Um, I I love. Um, everything about uh, life and people and, and the opportunities I've had to, to travel and, and never afraid of challenges, uh, take on a, little, a lot of different opportunities. So kind of an adventurous from that perspective where I don't get um, too stressed about anything mm-hmm. and have a pretty uh, level head as far as never getting too stressed out or letting anything bother me. So that, that was my one minute uh, overview of, of who I am and kind of where I've been positioned through my life yeah yeah no that's pretty good and i want to dive into some of those things too um i'll make a note or so but you said you grew up in a small town where was this small town small town was atwood kansas and it's a little rural community of about two thousand people oh wow that's really uh, small and, and it's it's but it's a great sports town and it's awesome growing up my parents were both teachers uh we i had a class a graduating class listen to this of 41 people um and so it was a small class. You got to know everybody. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everybody else's business. Yeah. But it was just a great environment. Um, and it was really nice because Northwest Kansas is where we were. I was able to get to Denver in three hours or get to Kansas City in eight. And so I spent more time in oh, Colorado wow. than I did actually in, in Kansas growing up. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. When you think of Kansas, I don't really, or at least when I do, maybe it's because I don't know my geography very well, but I don't think, oh, yeah, Colorado is relatively close. But you do have to drive through it. It's pretty flat. <laughs> well, it was Go for it. Yeah. Well, you know what's so funny is we, we would we would ride as kids, right? And so it was 20 minutes to the Nebraska line. So we'd ride up to, to, to Nebraska 
and then right back. And then the next day you could do a ride to Colorado. We were 45 minutes from the Colorado line. You oh, could wow. do a ride to the Colorado and back. So in two days you could go three states, right? Yeah. Including your own state on a 65 mile ride. So it's kind of cool from that perspective as well. Yeah, that's really neat. I So I live right on the Tennessee-Georgia line, so I can, on most of my rides, ride through two states and five counties um, and not not w- without too much too much hard uh, effort at all. So yeah, totally understand that. Um, so any siblings? I have a brother and a sister. Uh, my brother is three years older. My sister is five years older. So I was the youngest, which meant I got picked on a lot. No, I, I didn't yeah, get okay. picked on, but, but I was the youngest. I learned through their mistakes. What what hopefully not to do, but yeah, I have and a great relationship with both yeah. of them. Yeah, it's interesting. So I I am the oldest of three, and, but I have lots of friends who are the youngest, <laughs> and it, it does seem that they are um, they do learn from the mistakes. And yeah, my youngest sister, I'd say she's definitely bypassed some craziness. Um, but I'm curious. You said earlier that you don't get stressed uh, very easily. Is that also a I don't know, because of you were a younger sibling, you think? Is that part of the equation there? You, you know what? I, I think my the, the way I was raised was to pro- probably protected by my sister and protected by my brother. Mm-hmm. So they, they were they kind of absorbed those things that maybe were a little bit more stressful to, to our family. Um, and so m- maybe everything didn't make it down to me. But in it, in when it, if it did, it was all like you know we're we're gonna be good. We're, we're, this is a, gr- a good situation. This type of trial and tribulation is going to make us stronger, mm. and so on and so forth. I think that's what it was a little bit. I've kind of just carried that mantra. Yeah. People are like, man, you stand in front of groups that are thousand people in size, and and you don't get you don't look nervous, so you don't sound nervous. I said I, I don't get really nervous. I just I love that opportunity. I love that exposure. The mm-hmm. only time I probably get really really nervous. Um, it is when I'm, I'm pressed for something I'm not prepared, mm. right? Where someone says, Hey, Tim, can you give me 15 minutes of, of a presentation on this topic? And it might be a topic that I'm not completely versed in. And I'm, I'm kind of getting pulled in different directions and I yeah. haven't prepared. Lack of preparation for me is my stress point. If there yeah. is a place where I get a little aggravated and, and, and ouchy, it's, it's around that and it's self-induced. So yeah. I just have to learn how to overcome it. For sure. So what is your most favorite thing to talk about then? I I love, and, and this is going to be part of what I maybe do in retirement. I love getting in front of people and talking about breaking down walls, hmm. uh, how, how we can overcome the doubts in our mind. Um, what, why is it that we can do certain things around certain aspects of our lives and we can't other parts of our lives? Being more consistent in what you can do. Hmm. Um, I, I love I love being able to try and motivate people to do those things that they they otherwise have doubted. So that's my favorite speaking point. I also love talking about NCAA triathlon. I love talking about high school triathlon. I love talking about triathlon general. Yeah, put me in a front of a room and people would say, "Hey, what, what can you tell us about triathlon?" I can talk for hours on end sure. because it's such a part of my life. And it's yeah. part of what I believe in, sure. and I think it is life changing. It's life altering. And oh, when for we sure. have that ability to do that through a sport and through conversation, it's really easy to talk about, right? Yeah. So what was your first interaction with triathlon then? It was back in in, in, in undergrad. I was at Kansas State University in Manhattan, Kansas. Okay. And I was part of a relay uh, with, with some friends that said, hey, why don't you come and do it? And, and I could have done the run or the, the bike. And I ended up doing bike on an old clunky bike that, that I had gotten for a garage sale probably you know, two, two times too small. It was probably a 48 centimeter frame. I should have been riding like a 52 or 53. <laughs> but you know what? Uh, that was my first exposure. I ended up volunteering um, for other events in the area. And so it was back in 1985, if you can oh, yeah. believe that. Yeah, it's the birth years. It was, and it was a little town event. I, I say little town event. It was at Tuttle Creek Boulevard in Manhattan, which is a beautifully, beautifully positioned lake for a triathlon. It has a little body of water and has a lot of paved roads and and it was right off the edge of town so it's easy to do and you don't have to drive that far and but I, the manhattan heat can be pretty extreme in humidity yeah. and so sure. you, you had to bear bear through the hot hot day and and the super humid uh, activities you know even for a small little relay i remember thinking how hot i got on that 
on the bike on that day, but it was great. It was yeah. Awesome. How, what was the distance of the triathlon? It was a sprint race. So okay. it, it, yeah, it was probably a 300 meter swim. I can't remember exactly the distance, 300 meter swim, uh, 11, 12 mile bike and then a 5k run. And it probably wasn't a 5k run. They probably said it was a three mile run right back then. Yeah. We weren't using kilometers a lot for yeah. things that we were doing, but it was super sprint, super short. And, and a lot of college kids did it. You know, K-State is about 20,000 students. So a lot of kids okay. were there, a lot of, and Manhattan's a good active town too. It's a college town. So it has a lot of people. So we probably had 400 people in the race when I first did it. Okay. Wow. That's, yeah, that's sizable. Was it put on by like the university itself? It wasn't. It was just a local entrepreneur okay. uh, who who happened to to produce events and and I can't remember even the person's name. You know, the the great thing about it is if you go back and you look at some of the names, and I'd have to go really dig deep on the participation list. But there were people like like um, Clark Campbell, who was one of the top elite athletes back in Kansas the day, and okay. and and there were some really good Kansas athletes that would come do this event and then they do Topeka and they do a lot of other area races. But, but I remember thinking Clark Campbell, here's this star. He's now the, the swim coach at university of Kansas, right? After okay. many, many, many years. And he was one of the top triathletes in the region. Just thinking about what it would take to be that good. Yeah. I'll never be that good. Cause he was a great swimmer. I'm, I'm a pathetic swimmer. So. Yeah. <laughs> so when was the last triathlon that you participated in? You know, it's been a while. The last multi-sport event that I did was actually not even a triathlon. It was a duathlon. Okay. And it was in Fort Morgan, Colorado, probably six or seven years ago. Um, but I've done a lot of other things since I've done some, some bike, I call it bike racing. It's more bike riding, but I, I ride like I race mm-hmm. where I'm, I'm after the clock or I'm chasing the clock or I'm chasing people in the front. And that, that I, I ride 10 to 12 hours a week now. Wow, that's a lot. So I stay pretty fit. And so mm-hmm. cycling is my forte. Cycling is my go-to. Yeah. So that that's – I'm, I'm not racing competitively anymore. Mm-hmm. But can I get into a century ride and, and, and ride pretty hard and fairly fast? Uh, up to about two years ago, I could. I'm, yeah. I'm almost 60 now. Okay. And so when I look at almost turning 60, it's like, where is my power gone? Yeah. <laughs> I can't climb like I used to. Sure. Yeah, man, I can only imagine. I mean, well, so you've done quite a few triathlons or multi-sport stuff. I mean, obviously, I, throughout the yeah, years, thir- I would imagine. Yeah, 30 to 40 in my career, okay. which is a lot thinking about my career being so long. Mm-hmm. But I've done, you know, I raced bikes for six or seven years, Um I've done, you know, road racing, r- running events. Sure. Going back to, geez, when I was in second grade, I did my first running event. My, my mom and dad took uh-huh. me to a little town about an hour away. And and this is kind of a funny, and I'll make this quick. Oh, I never Take had coffee as a, as a second grader, right? Oh, my. And my, 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 my dad said, hey, for the caffeine effect, why don't you drink some coffee? And so I had this cooler. I remember this, this cooler kind of looked like this. <laughs> oh and I filled up with coffee and I first took the first sip of it. I'm like, oh, yuck. That was yeah. not good. And so I haven't had coffee since that day. Are you serious? I'm serious. You, ne- you haven't but even like went to try it. I haven't put coffee to my lips since second grade. Is that crazy? That is crazy, especially in the world of endurance sport. I mean, I don't drink a ton of coffee, but to hear that you've never since second grade, was it just like such a visceral reaction? I mean, do you go to Starbucks or any of these places and smell it? And you're like, man, that smells good at least. Or is it like, no, <laughs> I don't, I go to Starbucks for the, for the, the, the coffee bread or, or the muffin or, or sure. something like that. It, it doesn't even entice me. And I think, Maybe that second grade experience was that was the worst tasting drink I think I've ever had. Yeah. And as long as I don't ever need it for like, you know, in college for studying or I, I use it for its effects on, you know, on athletics, which people talk about caffeine and, and sure. how it can re- rejuvenate you and, and drive you. And I, I don't I mean, if I'm going to get caffeine, I'm probably going to get it from a quick shot of, of Coca-Cola or Dr. Pepper or Mountain sure. Dew or something like that. But I don't even drink sodas that much, so. Yeah. No, that's super interesting. So then how did you, or I guess I should ask this, what did you study in college? In, my, my undergrad was in business administration. So okay. this is kind of funny. My 
my my dad being a teacher had done some research with me about um, Kansas State, which is where I ultimately went to, to go. And I started off in, in an area of grain science because okay. they were talking about millers, you know, a lot of these milling companies making a, a lot of money. So in a career choice at that point in time in my life as a high school senior, I'm like, I'll go into milling science. I went to K-State. I was in chemistry one in my freshman year, my first semester. Mm-hmm. I'd never had a C in my life. And I got a C in this class. I'm like, nah, no, no more. <laughs> I'm not going into milling science because it's a ton of science. Yeah. And, and I, I, Proved to myself maybe I wasn't great in science, and so I I shifted to business administration, got a minor in finance, okay. um, so I had the, the ability to to just love the college experience um, because I loved business classes, I loved learning about business, and then I went to grad school and I was able to get my grad program work done in sport administration. Okay, after having been in the work world, right in the workspace, I was nine ten months out. I said I'm not liking the business. Of, of business. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to be in sports. And so what do I need to do? So I, I applied for grad school, got into grad school, ended up um, going two years, getting a de- degree. And so it actually worked out really, really w- well for me to, to be able to do that and, and get, and get the degree in something that I was really excited about. Yeah, that's super interesting. So then you said you were doing a little bit of work in between you, when you went back to grad school, what work was that? Was it just like a local business you decided to work with or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, my brother was working on his doctorate in, in optometry. And so okay. I had the ability to go out and spend some time with him. We have a great relationship. Kind of, we kind of touched on it earlier. My relationship with my siblings is really good. Yeah. And so I, I went to Portland, Oregon, Forest Grove, actually, which is on the, the western edge of, of, of Portland. Okay. And just worked some odd jobs. I worked uh, in, in, a, in a bakery. Um, I, I spent some time doing some consulting work. And it just wasn't resonating with me. Sure. It wasn't like getting me excited to wake up every day, which is what I want. Yeah. And by moving into sport, and I tell this a lot, Seth, um, I've been in sports for 34 years and I don't feel like I've worked a day in my life. And I know that's really trite to say that, but I don't. Mm-hmm. I love what I do every day. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. If you had to tell somebody, how do you, how do you find that? How, what would you say to them? How do you find that? Number one, um, don't worry about not knowing what you ultimately want to do in high school, mm-hmm. but figure out the few things you believe could carry you and sustain you for a lifetime. An area of work. If you want to be a doctor, pursue being a doctor. If you want to be in sports, pursue being in sports. And and think about all the things you need to do to accomplish your ultimate goals, who mm-hmm. you need to network with, the kind of business, what, what, what area of sport do you want to be in? You want to yeah. be in college? You want to be in professional? You want to be in the Olympic sport? There's a lot of areas of sport you can be in. Have a general idea. You can go between them, but have a general idea of the area of sport you want to put as your priority and figure out who's successful in those areas of business, right? What are, who are the people that are out there doing the mm-hmm. things that, that you ultimately want to do? And learning about them and learning about the job, learning about the industry, all those things. I, I'm one that will pursue passion projects like that because that's what ultimately leads to happiness, right? So yeah. that's kind of what I did as I went through this process. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Get to do what you like. If you, in, Even if it doesn't make money, I feel like, at least in my experience, if it's not making money in the beginning and if you do truly spend some time and focus on it, like the, the money-making aspect will usually show its face before too long. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my, my first salary, uh, my, I, I was signed on. It's kind of interesting. I came on as an intern within the Olympic Committee. I was able to um, apply for a job where the CEO said, write your job description. And if we like it, we're going to hire you. Oh, wow. Isn't that crazy? And, you and I was paid $14,000, $14,000 for my first full-time job. And I took it. I said, this is great money. I'm going there. <laughs> so this was back. How old were you at this point? You were like 27, 26? 1989. I was 25 years old. Okay. And uh, it was for 14 grand. I was saving money yeah. every month. On a 14k salary, which is why sometimes I hear about people making a lot of money and they're um, they're in debt. I'm like, how does that happen? Yeah, that you're in debt. I was able to make my car payments, my my student loans, my apartment complex, pay, paying for that. I was able to have a social life, and I still save money. So, 
there is something to be said about being frugal and I'm very frugal. So. Oh, for sure. I actually just did a little calculation. So in, um, 1989, $14,000 today adjusted for inflation would be worth about $34,600. So it's not terrible. I mean, you can, especially as a bachelor, you can figure out how to survive almost anything really. Um, but that's, it's pretty meager or humble to start out for sure. But I was happy. You know, if I if, if they'd oh, yeah. offered that and I've been like really disappointed, I would have never gone that direction with, with a sporting career. Yeah. So what was I your description? See. My description was, you know, when I was an intern, I was able to find a couple of gaps in the in the business. And that's mm-hmm. really what the CEO at that time, Mark Sisson, was looking for. He said, um, you know, I, it was championship overseeing our regional championship program and our national championship program and really building it out so that it had um, the ability to resonate with people. So it, sure. it met some needs that we had. And then I also built in Team USA, which was the, uh, I, Gary Scott, who's still working with me, he and I started Team USA, which is our age group world championship team okay. um, that, that we have now going around the globe on different activities. He and I built that program out. So it was an extension of that. So the national championships and regional championships would qualify athletes for Team USA, which is how I kind of build it all as one rather than as separate pods working independently i made them work jointly and that was the key thing i think he was looking for is how you could piece this together so it actually benefited usa traffic which was tri-fed back in those days and ultimately created a a demand for for people to join our sport and do what they want to do yeah so i'm curious i was also reading that you have served in i could name them all but vp of sport development marketing communication the ceo two different times helped with over 50 i2 championships Served as the CEO for a time, editor of the USAT membership publication. So, you know, in this kind of graduation each year that you've moved throughout this company, just walk us through a little bit of like how you moved from intern to like what your next job was and just what some of the stories you've seen along the way. Yeah, you, when, when you're an intern, you're pretty green, right? And Mark Sisson, funny, you know, 20 years after he brought me on as a full-time stepper said, I didn't know if you were ever going to really make it in our sport because you, you came in and you were green and, and you didn't know a lot about the sport and, and we, but, but you, you adapted and you learned and you worked hard. Uh, th- that when, when I talk about my movement through USA triathlon or sport, mm-hmm. it really came down to the, the break in the road, right? where I was start off as, as a championship coordinator with a lot of opportunities to do a lot of different things. And then a new CEO came in and said, Hey, I'd love for you to take on a lot of things that I'm not going to be able to do. So they, they brought me in as a, or, or shifted me to a project coordinator. Right? So all the projects that weren't being done for the organization need to be done is now what I was able to do alongside the championship, alongside the team USA program and other things. Mm-hmm. So I did that for 14 years. And so I was a right hand to the CEO at that time, Steve Locke, who gave me so many opportunities to do so many things. And that's really when I learned the business. Because when, I, when you're working with a CEO who was very forth giving of, of, of his time to train mm-hmm. me, to, to work with me, to do things that I need to do to help my career, Steve Locke was there and he really made it work for me. Sure. And then Steve walked into my office one day and said, Tim, uh, I'm leaving the organization today. And that's when my shift to, oh, no, now what happens? He said, I've already talked to the board. You're going to be our interim CEO. So that's when I I learned the what it's like to be at the top of the organization and having to lead an entire country sport. The downside of that is that the reason why he was leaving was because our board had fractioned. And we had half the board that was over here on an election that did that went awry that didn't go the way it should have gone. Yeah. And the other side was over here. And each side thought I was um, colluding with the other side. Oh my. And so what happened is I was getting pulled um, different directions. The other thing that was happening, I was still doing all the other jobs I was supposed to do and lead the organization at the same time. Mm. I was working 90, and I say 90 hours a week. I'm not overstating that. Yeah. I was at, at the office at six. 30 in the morning. I was going home at, at 11 o'clock at night. Oh my goodness. And I said, I can't sustain this. I got I got to step away. So I stepped away. And that's when I went to the National Junior College Athletic Association. But then I came back and the CEO, Skip Gilbert said, I want you to start a marketing and communications division. 
We don't have one that's functional, operational right now. I want you to start it. For six years, I did that. So what year was this, I, by the way? That, that would have been 2006. Okay, so like the information age is really coming into importance at that point. So when, when, when I talk about the movements through my career, the fork in the road is what, what led to these different opportunities. You know, if, if Skip Gilbert doesn't call me eight months into my time at, at, at National Junior College Athletic Association, I'm probably still with NJCA or probably in collegiate sports because that would have probably been the step that I would have taken to get into the other side of, of sport. Sure. Because I love that side of sport. I'm, I'm working with the NCAA program now, and I still love that side of, of what I do here. Mm-hmm. But then, then I was in that that position for for six years as the senior vice president for marketing and communications, which had me um, establishing every part of what we need to do in marketing communications. And luckily, I had been engaged 14 years in marketing communications under Steve Locke in that previous role as as assistant executive director. So I knew a lot about it. I'd done a lot of work in undergrad as, as a business major. So I, I was able to apply some of those things. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I, was, I was the interim CEO when, when Skip left. And that I, I was able to, to serve a little bit longer time frame in that interim CEO. Knowing that I, I'm a project-based person. Give me something, start it. Start yeah. it, build it, create something really good out of it. I probably don't have the right DNA to be a CEO of a, of a, of a company where I have to give up all those operational duties and responsibilities sure. and, and lead from with a completely different view of, of life and the world and, and your sport. Um, that was just something that I came to, to, to learn and know. And then I was able to shift into sport development where it was a little bit more of a push into, again, where are the gaps within the organization? Fill the gaps. Tim, start to create. So our current CEO, Vic mm-hmm. Brumfield, who you know, mm-hmm. said, I want you to start the, the high school program. I want you to recreate it. I want you to build it and, and do something really good with it. And I want you to revamp our collegiate club program. I want you to continue to build that NCAA. And I want to continue to build that Team USA and do all these things that you're doing. Again, another fork in the road, another opportunity to do some really cool things. Yeah. For the organization for the sport so that's the, the the long version of of kind of how i've been able to step through these various levels of my life yeah good for you and thank you so much for sharing so like on a day-to-day basis then what does what you're doing now chief sport development officer actually do and you mentioned a little bit of the high school and you know the those programs but what are you working on like day-to-day these days day-to-day there there are really four focuses i have every every day and i touch on every one of these every day which is also why working at usa triathlon is great because i'm not like just stuck doing one thing every day yeah but but you can see the board behind me i was getting ready to ask about it yeah there's a funny story i'll kind of i'll kind of pivot to that really quick and i'll come back sure um vic had come to me saying want you start a high school program from scratch i want you to do some really cool things with it so i went on a bike ride i do my best thinking on on bike rides so I went on an hour bike ride, came back, and I just did a data dump. Everything I was thinking of during my ride, I wrote on the board, and it's still there. And I'm not going to erase it because it, it, it shows what can happen when you let the mind kind of free, freely expand and, and just look at every direction you could possibly go with the program. Now, obviously, we've tightened this thing up since then. Sure. So every day I get to work through the high school program with our very small team. Different things that we're building out, talent scouts that we're, we're, we're adding in every state and things like that. I get to work with our collegiate club program, how we're adding new collegiate clubs by by leveraging opportunities for men and women to get engaged at the collegiate level. I get to continue to work on the NCAA side of our business so that we come, we're emerging sport now, we're going to be a championship sport soon. To get it to that next level of championship sport, which should happen in the next two, two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And then our Team USA, which is our age group world championship team. I get to work on that every day. So, for instance, this morning I got up at six. Okay. Usually it's between five forty-five and six, and I am immediately setting up my day with all of my things I want to try to get done. And it involves engages each of these areas of our business. I spent an hour going through budget for next year. Um, I spent a, a half hour going through some of the things we're going to have our interns do this week. Um, I had some some NCAA discussions with a team and it's, it's only 1135 in the morning and we've already spent a lot of time doing a lot of cool things within the yeah. areas of the business that I'm now overseeing. Yeah, that's super interesting. And can you share a few of the things that are on that board behind you? 
for what you were thinking on that on that bike ride that day? Well, well, I'm sorry, I just lost you, Seth. What'd you say? Oh, can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Okay, I was going to ask, can you share a few things that were on that board behind you that you just kind of brain dumped? Because I'm super curious to know, like, what things made it and what things didn't. The the yeah, matter of fact, I can't. One of the areas is is priorities. You know, what one of the the reasons why I felt taking on the high school program was was really important is that our NCAA programs need recruitment right? Need to build on mm-hmm. recruitment. So the high school program becomes a feeder to the NCAA program as far as talent, finding athletes that can get to that next level. So on, on one side of the board, which is actually this side, I talk a little bit about what the priority is going to be. We're going to focus on cities where we have NCAA institutions first. We're going to have cities where we have collegiate clubs second. We're going to have cities where we're building out youth programs third. We have another area of our business that's doing that. And the fourth prong is where we already have adult clubs doing extensions of, of high school around those adult clubs. Okay. And then I kind of moved to the next level, which was about marketing communications, which is the lower middle of, of the of the board there. Yeah. We had to talk about what we can do to market and communicate and promote the sport. And then it, I, I moved to the higher prong where I got into what other models exist that are really successful. So I talked about NICA. I got some NICA points up here. Wait, what I are talked NICA? about how we need to go to Europe and find out all the European models and what exists over there. So I talked a little bit about that on the board okay. and who's some of the, the, those top groups. So each of them is segmented, but it each had an important part in the four months that we spent building this out without announcing it. We said, we're going to build it for four months. This was the stuff that we had to build out. What are, You said NICA points. What is that? NICA is, uh, is, is really it's, it's the Off-Roading Cycling Association. Okay. Um, it, it's it's really been a fast moving high school sport build that that exists in nearly every state. They built it from the ground up. It was a okay. concept of getting kids that have maybe never done any athletics whatsoever to get on a mountain bike and ride the yeah. trails, and and be be engaged with a team, and thinking about what they what you can do as a person to improve as they say, 1% every day. And they've, they've really latched on to some philosophies that I agree with, that I, that I want to model after, ours after, which is, if you want to come do it, do it. There, there, there's nothing that's going to keep you from doing it. We don't have a structure that's, that is only for those that can afford to do it. We're going to build a structure that allows anyone and everyone that wants to do a triathlon, a duathlon, an aquath, an aqua bike event is going to have the ability to do it. No equipment is going to be short of, of any person saying, I, I don't have a bike. We're going to get you a bike. Someone says, I can't afford running shoes. We're going to find you running shoes. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know anything about the sport. We're going to get you coaching the support you need to be, actually be able to learn about the sport. We're going to get, I don't have any confidence to do sport. We're going to have a coach and a mentor that's going to help you create the confidence you need to be able to do your first sport. Nothing is going to prevent anyone from doing the sport if, if we can build it right. We're built, I think we built a pretty good model around that. Yeah, it's super interesting. So it cut out a little bit there. Um, but what I picked up was basically you guys have been you worked for four months to kind of build out this program. And then you started to share a little bit more of how that's been putting into place. And then you were talking about NICA and how it completely just has opened the gates, I guess, for people who may not have the opportunity to necessarily go out and get a mountain bike. So my question is for you and NICA and kind of the surrounding organizations, because I think they're mostly nonprofit where does the funding come from, you know, for building out? Because you're talking about scouts building high school programs to feed the collegiate programs, to feed the championships, to feed, you know, ultimately the professionals, and then on and so forth to the Olympics or what and whatnot. Where does the money come from for this stuff? Well, we we have, and this is what's what's amazing, is this first year that, that you know, we're in year or month four right now of, of actual having it unveiled, mm-hmm. is we're building on a volunteer model where we have talent scouts, we have over a hundred talent scouts right now, and they're building the sport in their state. And what they're doing, they're not going out there finding athletes. They're finding coaches that can help build a club in an area of the state where they need to build a club. They're talking to race directors who can actually add the a high school wave to their event at a low registration fee. So we can get kids to compete without having to spend a lot of money. Yeah. Um, we're, we're supporting them with, um, members of USA Triathlon that can give them product. Um, as an example, there's a reach that I did this morning about a club that we're building here. And 
I had eight people reach back and say, I'll give you bikes. I'll give you trainers. I got some shoes. I got some helmets. We had a couple of companies that reached back to us and said, I'm going to give you a 40% off on the purchase cost of this. We're building a volunteer model because we believe that it will ultimately lead to a model of, of, of support for the coaches that are doing them when they have a, an, an understanding of how big their, their, their business, their, their club can, can get, what the needs of those clubs are. Um, one of the things I learned, Seth, about studying some overseas models is that some of them are not charging a fee to be part of a club. Mm-hmm. They're, they're saying, what can you afford? What do you think is affordable for you as a parent? If the parent comes back and says $25 per kid, I've got three kids to join the club for a year, then that's what they're going to accept. But in talking with the parents that can afford to pay more, we're saying, hey, we've got some dope. We might want to have you help scholarship if you can. Can you pay 75 bucks? And people are like, I'll pay you 100 bucks. So what you find is actually you, you generate more funding support for your club through mm-hmm. that open model. It's a European model. It's, it shows itself as, as working almost better than a standard. It's 80 bucks, like it or not. If you can't afford 80 bucks, you're not going to be part of our club kind of mentality that some clubs sure. have adopted. That's not what we're doing here. So we're, we're building it around volunteers, people that can give time, that give product, to give money, that race directors can lower their fees. Ultimately, it will be a, a funding model that we'll be able to generate some funds around to support the commitment that these people in this early stages are giving to us mm-hmm. and giving to the sport. Um, we just haven't built it into this first year model that we actually created. Yeah, that's super interesting. So do you have like a, a metric of success that you're looking to hit within the first year, first two years to kind of say like this is working or isn't? Yeah, you know, it's funny when we, we set our goal of having 40 new high school clubs this year. Okay. We're, we're at 82 clubs right now. Wow, that's awesome. We've got a whole quarter to go. Um, so we've established another number that we're going to hit, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. 70, 81 clubs total, 77 are brand new. And we've done that in four months because wow. we've been really aggressive with it. We push, we've got the right people in place doing the great things. It's really about people doing the great things, not so much about what we're doing. Yeah. We also have talent scouts. We talked about leaders within the state. We wanted 30 states represented. We've got 35 states represented right now, right. which was just also good. We wanted to have um, three diverse clubs. We've got three diverse clubs we've been able to create in areas of the U.S. where um, they otherwise wouldn't have been able to afford to be able to do what we're doing, but we've got great people on the ground doing some stuff there. So we're continuing to build. We, we want to have each club have a minimum of five kids on their club by the end of the year. So okay. that's another metric that we're hoping we can actually also hit. Um, we are building these clubs out. There's no cost to register your, your club with USAT. And and there's 10 free memberships we're offering to these kids to be part of it so they can learn about the sport and get information from us and get the magazine and yeah. do all those cool things that we're able to do with that yeah. too. Again, a commitment that we feel USAT needed to make in order to drive this. Yeah, for sure. So on the marketing and communication side for this push, I'm not super like subscribed to a lot of the stuff. I mean, I've seen trimmers every once in a while, I think, of some of this stuff going out, but I haven't like seen an overwhelming, just like I wasn't that knowledgeable about it. So what are you guys doing and what should we be following as listeners and as myself to like kind of stay in tune with the developments that um, you guys are working on? Well, you know what? One of the things that, that we know is we need to to, to paint a pretty wide brush. Of, you know, we need to, to reach not just those in our sport, right through Instagram, through Facebook, mm-hmm. through our webpage, but we need, to, we need to have more of a peer-to-peer relationship. So guess what we did? We brought on eight interns and we have these eight interns that are working with us at the high school level, the collegiate club level, and the subway level. They're really good at social media. Yeah. Really good. And so we're leaning on them and their expertise to drive social media on the education side of what we're doing about around the high school build, around the collegiate club build, around the NCAA build, which is really important. Um, and and we've, we've done that because they also are almost peers of these individuals that they're talking to. And so when you're talking about mental health, when you're talking about questions that, that kids have or parents have, who better to respond to them than a college student who's an intern with us hmm. versus someone from the national organization that may, may or may not be seen as people that are really aligned with them as 
18-year-old, 19-year-old kids, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that, that's been an angle that we've taken. So, um, we, you know, we are doing some new and different things right now through, through our, our different communications. I think the biggest thing that we're doing is having the kids that are engaged with us do the talking for us. Yeah. So of those 81 clubs, having them use leverage social media to talk about their experience. What are they doing? What are they seeing? How are they enjoying this new option that they have? Maybe it's a new sporting career for them. Maybe they, they don't want to do anything else but triathlon. And talk about the whys around them, the hows yeah, and how they built it and what they're doing. The club leads doing the same thing. Here's how we built our club. And here's what we built it on, the, the foundation on, under which it's been, been formed and sharing those stories. Um, so a lot of it is just grassroots, um, drive hard, social media, leveraging what people already have as social media, whether it be Instagram, whether it be uh, you know, YouTube, video cuts, you name it. We're, we're, mm-hmm. we're trying to build that out right now. Yeah, good deal. So I want to switch gears a little bit um, to get your thoughts as like an individual and then also as like a part of the organization of USAT. So as you know, I've only been a part of the sport now for really for like three years. So my knowledge level compared to you is quite limited. So this might be where we get to some of the stupid questions of the podcast. But it seems like that triathlon is in a very transformative, interesting moment where you have um, – World Triathlon working with PTO saying like this is going to be the new world championship and then you know you have the other organizations you have Super League um, you have Ironman obviously and there's like this top level of like we're all doing the same thing but then there's kind of this undertone of competition and who's leading what and how's this all going to work out so I'm curious what you just like your overall starting general opinion are of like these different organizations and maybe even a question like why wasn't USAT the company to create the PTO or things like that? Is it because you do focus a lot more on the initial development athletes, younger age? There's a lot there, but I would love to hear just your thoughts and opinions on all that. Yeah. You know, it, it's when, when we look at our, our bandwidth as an organization, mm-hmm. um, we, we have a, yeah, it's a reasonably large staff. We have 60 plus staff. Uh, we have about 50 projects that we focus on. But there's also, as a nonprofit, a 501c3, we have limited budgets. And we have to remain very true to the core of what we're about. What, what, what is our sweet spot? Where do we need to exist as an organization? And one of the things that we, we do is we produce our own events, but they're very limited. We have our age national championship, and we have mm-hmm. our multi-sport national championship. And then we have others that we work with, others that we, we farm out to, to, to race directors do certain things. When... When we learned of the PTO's interest in making some things happen, it was actually a celebration. It wasn't like, wow, they're in competition with us because they're actually not at all. They are, they're doing what we're doing, but they're doing it through their events, right? They're yeah. doing it through the communication and their marketing. That expands the, the pie, right? When you expand the pie globally, ultimately it comes back to help you as a governing body, as a body that's supporting the sport to grow also. Sure. When you look at Super League and the and PTO has amazing leadership, and we work with them extensively. When you have Super League, incredible leadership, and we work with them extensively. It's a completely different style of racing, and it's a style of racing that we may adopt in due time with NCAA. So maybe they've taught us some things about how they're doing what they're doing and the successes mm-hmm. that they're they're doing, and they're going to actually work through the things that become problematic for them so that people that try to emulate and simulate what they do with, the, with smaller local events can sure. do it with much greater success and ability to make some money because because Super League's been able to do it and prove the model can right. work. When you look at Iron Man, long-standing, great brand, one of the biggest brands we will ever have this for, a bigger brand than what USA Triathlon always has, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, been, been touting as an important brand for the sport, but yet Iron Man's a brand that everybody knows. They yeah. do incredible work. And so when you look at these entities, Seth, we all exist in this universe of supporting sport. And even though the missions and the vision is different, the ability for us to ultimately end up in the same place is true. Where we grow the pie, we have more race directors putting on events once we get through this last phase of all out from COVID. More athletes doing races, and we're expanding our race disciplines as well. We're talking about um, gravel triathlon 
as another option of multi-sport. We're talking about super sprint races. We just came back for a world championship in Spain. We had a 28-minute race. It was a super sprint time trial. Mm-hmm. We have all of these new disciplines that are kind of splintering. I say splintering in a very positive way. Yeah. The sport so that everybody can do it rather than a few people saying, I can't do Ironman. Well, it's sure. not just about Ironman. It's about all these other sports mm-hmm. and disciplines and distances as well. That's how this can work together, how we can work together in this universe. And that's how we are working together in this universe where we may put on some events with PTO again, as we did in Milwaukee. We've done some work with, with Super League in, in Malibu as part of our Collegiate Club National Championship tie that we had. Continuing to find opportunities to work together is really what it's all about for us as well. For sure. I like the optimistic um, outlook on it. And that's, that's a good way to look at it. I mean, as long as the sport is growing, for sure. I think that that's always a good thing. Um, you mentioned in there this last leg of kind of the COVID fallout. What is that specifically? I think I know what it is, but would love to hear your thoughts on that. And then are you seeing now exponentiated growth post COVID in any ways? And if so, what? Cause I don't, I don't necessarily have that view. I mean, in some ways I do, but I would love to hear your opinion on it. Yeah. You, you know, it's interesting uh, how the sport came to, to, a, to a really a stop during yeah. COVID. I remember when we first started talking about it and what ultimately happened was that race directors stopped hosting events, athletes stopped racing. Um, we, we, we turned very creative. We, we turned to the model of indoor tries, you know, into um, d- doing standalone swim, bike and run events in, yeah. in your own um, areas, you know, pools weren't open. So you had to do it in lakes and we had to be mm-hmm. really creative and we got really agile and we had to really focus and, and move through that, that, that whole phase of our existence. Probably the single toughest time ever in the history of USA triathlon. And in my career, I, mm-hmm. I remember we, we allowed for people to take furloughs and we lost 18 staff, not wow. because we laid them up, but they accepted the furlough that, that, that they took. Uh, so I lost some friends of mine um, through it, that I worked with, that I worked yeah, closely yeah. with. Yeah, daily. So now, now let's fast forward. Um, are we are we coming out of COVID? We are. And what we're starting to do is now is compare what our numbers were with 2019. And we're really, really close. Okay. Pre-COVID phases, which means we're in a really good place, right? Participation is growing again. Number of events are starting to come back and people are a lot more creative. And like you said, Seth, being positive, there are some really, really good things that COVID taught us that, that we've been able to apply. A, a lot of stuff is virtual, right? It used to be that we would force you to come to a race briefing at the venue. Now we can do race briefings that are one week out virtually. You can watch before you even show up for the event. You know exactly everything you need to do, mm-hmm. right? Um, there, there are some things that, that, that we will continue to take about registration processes and how we've been able to learn from that. We've probably taken four or five things that we shifted to that race directors and others shifted to during COVID that we that we like, that we've seen work, and that athletes are starting to embrace. The one thing I don't like from post-COVID is that when it started opening up just a little bit, the the registration window, which used to be 90 days out, is where you got your bulk of your registrations, mm-hmm. turned to 30 days or inside 30 days. So when you're a race director trying to plan for how many shirts you need to close on or or do you need to get extra shirts, all these things that are variable in nature, you can't predict. And we were looking at some race directors a year ago saying, I've got to cancel my race because I don't have the numbers. They canceled 30 days out knowing that 40% of the registrations were probably going to come inside of 30 days. That's the part that I think people have become comfortable doing, late registration, coming in. They don't care if they have to pay $20 more per registration. They're mm-hmm. doing it because they don't want to to have the things happen where races yeah. were canceling on them during COVID. And they don't want to see that happen now. If we can get out of that cycle, I think it helps all of us. I'm just not sure we're going to be able to do that. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens for sure. So what are you most excited about for like the next plan? I mean, I don't know how, how big your three-year, five-year, one-year plan like that you're looking out on um, but what is the thing that you were like absolutely most excited about right now? Well, it, when we look at what what the sport is going to do as a whole, I'll kind of break this into these two part, parts. Mm-hmm. The sport is going to bounce back and be bigger than it ever has been before. And that's going to happen the next year and a half or two years. I really believe that. Call me naive, 
34 years in the business, you can still call me naive, sure. but I think that's going to happen because I think we know we have to come together as a community of, of triathlon in order for this to work. We've got to have better, stronger relationship with our race directors. We've got a better, stronger relationship with partners, endemic and non-endemic that can come in and support the, 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 the costs that we have, the needs that we have, and things they can do to contribute to the sport's longevity and success. We're going to be able to to bring in more coaches and have more coaches certified and more excited about the number of athletes they can support, the teams and the clubs they can build and so on and so forth. So I think that's all positive. I think we're going to get there as, as an organization, as a group. I also believe within the area of my scope, the high school program, two or three years from now, I hope we're looking at 200, 300, 400 clubs that are all enjoying the sport, not about competition, but participation. And we're changing lives for the high school program. The Collegiate Club Program, we created a campaign called um, Project 190. 190 being the largest number of collegiate clubs we would have ever seen in the sport. Okay. We're going to get there in the next, hopefully, year and a half, two years. So that's a goal I have set up for, for that. And then our NCAA program, we're going through the assessment process probably starting next year. Moving from emerging sport to championship sport means that we will now have the ability for all of these massively big institutions to add our sport knowing that they get benefits, Learfield, President Cup points, blah, 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 all the yeah. other things that come with being a championship sport versus emerging sport that will allow us to really build out the NCAA part of our business. And then on the Team USA side, which is our age group t- world team, is continuing to be really creative and seeing new things we can do traveling the world and coming together and being the number one medal um, country in, in the world, regardless of where we're competing, whether it be in Europe, Australia, or, or in the US. So I'm excited about all this stuff because I love to see growth. I love to see success. I love to see our see us hit our, our ultimate long-term goals. I was going to ask, from 2015 to 19, are you basing it on those trajectories? And you just have that because you're working more with race directors, like you said. That was part of it. Yeah, matter of fact, I, I you know, when you look back at 2015 through 2019, there was very, very incremental growth. It was actually very small. Okay. <clears throat> and And I think what... What COVID did is it kind of shook us up a little bit, right? The, the, the strong will survive kind of mentality where we had to survive. The racetrack had to survive. The athlete had to stay true to what they ultimately wanted to see happen within the sport itself. And I think that was really, really important. Um, the other thing that, that you, you posed of me is, is when we look at, at the short-term goals as an organization, I see us being able to do some amazing things as a sport. Uh, we're going to come together as a as a community. We have to come together as a community and be stronger together than 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 as independent um, entrepreneurs. Yeah, for by sure. coming together, race directors will have the ability to produce the exact kind of event they want to produce with the, the the participation that they need in order to sustain their careers as as maybe standalone race directors. Coaches need to have athletes to coach, and so we'll continue to build out what we're doing there. When we start looking at partners, really engaging more types of endemic and non-endemic partners to mm-hmm. learn about what the sport can offer to them and, and things that they can become more engaged with us. This is the mentality that we're taking is looking at um, almost going back to, to the, the, the roots of our sport, right? And how these entities can become bigger and, and more important to the sport's growth and movement post COVID. Yeah. Um, and then when I look individually at what we're trying to build at the high school level, I'm really excited about where the high school program is going to be two or three years from now, because I think we're going to be 200, 300 high schools in, in strength. I think we're going to be in a sure. really good place. I think our numbers are going to be really good with a lot of events for them to do. I think our NCAA program will move from emerging sport to championship sport, which is what we've been working hard for nine years to, to get to. And I think a lot of institutions are going to start adding the sport because they're going to see that we're at the championship level, which a lot of them have been waiting to see if we're ever going to get there. We're actually there now. And Wait, the what does that actually side, mean? Sorry. I just want to interrupt for a second. What does that mean to get to the championship level? Is that because you have the level of athletics, like the actual athletes themselves that are performing at a level that where you consider championship, or what does that mean? Yeah, it's it's a good question. Um, it's not a dumb question. It's a good question, Seth. Um, it could be stupid. <laughs> we were <laughs> back in two thousand. Make this quick. Back in two thousand six, we started talking about what would be the zenith. What would be the the most amazing thing that we could build out. For, for triathlon. And that was NCAA triathlon. So we spent five or six years building it out. We, we were approved on the on the floor of the NCAA convention in 2014. We, um, 
We, we've been building NCAA triathlon since then as an emerging sport, emerging to the extent where the NCAA said, you're a sport that has great potential to be a really big NCAA sport over time. So as an emerging sport, we fall in with a, a couple other sports that are also emerging, which means they're growing at this level of collegiate triathlon. Mm-hmm. Moving to championship status means that we are no longer emerging, that we've met the criteria and the expectations of the NCAA as a next level sport, which means we are going to be treated at the same level as track and field, swimming, lacrosse, all these other sports that are full-fledged NCAA varsity sports. On the women's side, we're, we're emerging sports on the women's side. We haven't built up the men's side just yet. So that would mean that we've done all the things we need to do to get to championship level, which means they they cover the, the, the burden of costs, right? For yeah. student athletes who want to get to national championship, NCAA covers those costs. They put on the events on our behalf. All that is absorbed by them for us so that we don't have to bear the burden of those costs as we're doing right now. NCAA is a nonprofit as well? NCAA is a – that's a great question. I'm pretty sure it's a for-profit. I mean, it would make sense with the, especially the big sports that you think of when you think of NCAA. But I, I mean, how are they making money? I guess off of like college football and show, they, TV sponsorships. Yeah, the 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 it it's massively big uh, business for them when it comes to the NCAA basketball tournament. Yeah, March Madness. incredible revenues they're generated through that. Probably the biggest revenue source for them. Um, there's probably a revenue source of bowl games and football. Television mm-hmm. contracts, all the media contracts yeah. that, that plays a part in what they're able to do uh, as, as an agency. You know, they, they they have a new CEO, and it's going to be interesting. The NCAA program as we see it now will be much different in, in the next few years. What happens with football and basketball is going to turn the tide for, for sports at the collegiate level. What's it going to mean for Olympic sports? We don't know yet. And there's a lot of people that are taking care of the Olympic sports side, too, so that the many of the 47, 48, 49 Olympic sports mm-hmm. um, also don't go away within the NCAA structure as well. So there's some yeah. good talks about that. Yeah, for sure. Interesting stuff. Matt, well, thank you so much for just sharing some of your experience, what you've been doing, what's going on, and what to expect. Um, I can say for sure that we know you are a busy man because I hear people dinging your phone and sending you emails constantly. So we don't want to keep you too long. Um, but yeah, just thank you. Actually, I'm, so one thing I'm trying to do for the podcast now. And I keep getting listeners saying, Seth, you don't ask stupid questions. And that is the whole name of this podcast. So I would like to put something before you and ask you, um, what do you think of this? So Mr. Beast, don't know if you know who Mr. Beast is. But Mr. Beast, this will be a great question then. So Mr. Beast, uh, is a big YouTuber. He will be advertising his Feastables chocolate bars in um, a game coming up with the Charlotte Hornets um, at, on a patch on their jersey for the NDW, N, NBA's first tie-up uh, with an influencer. What do you think of that? Do you understand kind of what the question was? <laughs> you know, what? I, 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 well, I, yeah, I understand the question. What do I think of that? Um, I'll, I'll say this, that the, the entrepreneurial capabilities of people to do new and different things mm-hmm. – we don't know what's going to be successful and what is not going to be successful. What's going to be the rave? What's going to connect with various demographics of, of different aged individuals? If if someone like him, it's a him, it's not Miss it Beast. No, it's Mr. Beast. Yep. Mr. Beast um, can be successful d- doing that. If, if it's good for us as, as consumers – and it creates a different pr- perspective as consumers, and it creates great talking points for us to, to read and, and share, um, then, mm-hmm. then power to them. Good deal. Good answer. Good answer. Was that a good answer? I mean, I think it's good enough, yeah. I mean, I, I so I'm adding in these, like, pieces of information that I'm going to ask a question on it, but I read it wrong. So it kind of, it blew up the whole lead up to it. And I'm wondering if I should not even give like a cue next time and just like completely say it and then ask a question. But I think that's a great answer. I mean, for, for that. Yeah. If we can find creative ways of advertising within, um, you know, if an influencer or let's just say stupid questions gets big enough to where I can put the stupid questions logo on uh, whoever Ben Knut's Jersey at the Olympics or, you know, one of his big races or something. Yeah. I think it ultimately like brings, uh, more power to the sport. So I think it was a great answer for a stupid question. 
Hey, Seth, you know what? If, if you were to if you were to put um, ask me a stupid question on Ben Knut's racing kit. It'd probably be the funniest day of his life because it would be all day long. People asking him stupid questions and he would probably just laugh most of the time that he was asked the stupid questions. Yeah, it'd probably be pretty sure. funny. Do you know Ben? I do know Ben. I may off the air. I have to ask you for an introduction to see if we could make something like that happen. That'd be really you interesting. Let's do it. I, I know Ben well enough to be able to, to approach him. Let's, let's make that happen. Seriously. Awesome. Good deal. Awesome. Sweet. Well, hey, thank you so much, um, Tim, for taking the time. It has been a great pleasure, and we will catch you in the next one. Awesome. Thanks again. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Stupid Questions podcast with Tim Yant. Huge thank you to Tim and USA Triathlon for making it happen to set up a time and get connected. As you heard from the interview, uh, Tim is a very busy guy, so apologies about all the extra dings and, and whistles there. Um, it sounds like a air bike horn, which is really funny. Um, but yeah, just thank you so much for checking it out. If you made it to this point in the episode, I just want to ask, like I always do, um, or started to, uh, please check out the review section for wherever you're listening to this podcast and give the podcast a uh, five star or three star, whatever, how many stars you think that this podcast has earned and leave a review. That would be super awesome to us. Also, if you want to check it out on YouTube, you can do that at the um, just type in stupid questions with Seth Hill on YouTube and it will show up. Uh, the logo is exactly the same as wherever you're listening. So thank you guys so much. Make sure to like, comment, subscribe if this if you're watching on YouTube. Um, thank you so much for the comments and for everything that you guys have enabled so far. This has been a fun journey and look forward to talking to you in the next one. Goodbye.